See, the question is, we don't know like when the bull market will end, right? What's the top? Is it $50,000? Is it $100,000? What happens once you reach the top? Will it just go down crashing or be a slow death? Like nobody knows, right? That, that, that's kind of what makes, what, what makes building a company in crypto space really hard as well. Yeah. Hello, folks. This is Jason Yanowitz, and you're listening to Empire. Today, I sat down with Bobby Ong, who is the co-founder and the COO of CoinGecko, a really interesting company, bootstrap business out of Malaysia. Bobby and his co-founder have been working on CoinGecko for years now, been around for quite a while, and they're really just taking off. And they're taking on the 800-pound gorilla coin market cap. Bobby is a phenomenal entrepreneur, um, and I'm excited for you to listen and hear his story. Before we jump in, a little bit of housekeeping. If you haven't subscribed to BlockWorks' newsletter, that's at blockworks.co forward slash newsletter. And if you haven't rated the podcast, we're shooting for 100 reviews in the first 100 days. So head over to Apple. If you're listening on YouTube, click that subscribe button. Uh, and that's it. So let's enjoy the episode and uh, we'll jump in. This episode is brought to you by Luca Tax and Exodus. Stay tuned for more info. Bobby, I'm so excited to have you on as one of the first guests for Empire. Thank you so much for joining the show, my friend. Look, I want to start. You have an interesting story. You've been working on CoinGecko. You're one of the co-founders, right now the COO. I want to start a few years back. You guys launched the company in 2014. I was reading the Bitcoin Talk Forum from April 8th, 2014, when you launched. Take me back to what the data space in crypto was like, or just what crypto was like in general back in April of 2014? I, I first got into the Bitcoin space in 2013. And um, when, I, when I first saw websites in the space, it was really badly designed. It sort of reminded me, kind of brought me back to the time when I first started using the internet. For those of you old enough, you remember websites designed using GeoCities and uh, there was a certain kind of design on GeoCities and there's all kind of weird flashy uh, designs. And that was kind of what websites in the crypto space uh, were like back then. Mt. Gox has always been there. It was kind of a shady exchange that trades Bitcoin in Japan and, and kind of had to wire your money across to Japan before you can even buy Bitcoin, which is kind of a pain. I personally bought my Bitcoin uh, from local Bitcoins. Uh, I mean, for those of you in America, you're kind of lucky because you can kind of have a pretty modern interface that you can buy it from Coinbase back then. I mean, it was not great, but it kind, of, it kind of does the work. But like basically my first Bitcoin was I purchased it from a total random stranger on local Bitcoins. And, and there was a notice saying, okay, want to sell Bitcoin? And I say, okay, yeah, how much you want to sell? And I kind of agreed on a price and say, okay, here's my bank details. Please white, send money over to these bank details. And I will put, and the Bitcoin is going to be on escrow on, on local Bitcoin and you'll get it. <laughs> it's really shady. Like, I don't know who he is, but you know what? For the sake of trying, I have no other choice to buy Bitcoin. So I just send some money to some random dude and, um, and I got the Bitcoin and I moved it to my wallet. So that was interesting. So that was Bitcoin. Buying Bitcoin was kind of a, not a very pleasant experience back then. And I talked about altcoins. So um, I think I remember using one of my first exchanges was Vercurex. If you go to some of this like really not really good exchanges, like, like the ones on the bottom of CoinGecko, like you probably get a semblance of some of these exchanges from the 20, 2014 days. And then all these exchanges, they, they, they have a similar trend. They, they kind of shut down, like they got hacked, they got shut down, the money disappears. It just repeats after itself. So like Vicarek kind of got hacked. I was lucky. I kind of withdrew some of my coins before the hack happened, a few months before that maybe. And then after that, it kind of moved towards uh, Cripsy. 
or Minpel at one point. And then uh, either way, like both of them were running for a while and then they both got hacked as well and then they disappeared. I, I was lucky, I kind of managed to withdraw my coins before that, but I think my, my co-founder TM wasn't so lucky. He, he lost some of his uh, altcoins on, on, on one of these exchanges. So um, yeah, that, and then after that, Bittrex kind of took over like the leading, as the leading altcoin exchange of the world. And then I think Poloniex at one point became that. And then uh, they all struggled to scale during the 2017 bull cycle. And Binance just kind of came on at the right time. And uh, they started with conquering the Chinese market. Uh, kind of good timing as well. The Chinese, Chinese government was shutting down all the, the, the Huobi and the OKX of China because they were incorporated in China. But I think CZ's Canadian, so he didn't really care. So he just kept on continuing the website. And, and he kind of captured all the liquidity from Chinese market and kind of used that. And he has a pretty modern uh, software and allowed onboarding of new users and kind of got all the other users uh, on board as well. So it's kind of a modern, modern trading experience. And I think now we're kind of seeing a shift as well. Like we're seeing FTX kind of going very aggressively, challenging uh, Binance's dominance. And but not just that, we're also seeing like uh, the decentralized exchanges are giving a pretty good fight to all the centralized exchanges. And, 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 and we see like how this, will pan out and fight in the, in the coming years. Like, I mean, it's surprising, like, if you think about it, like, Uniswap does as much volume as Coinbase does on a 24-hour basis. And if you were to tell me at the start of, like, 2020, like, do you know what? By the end of the year, like, Uniswap is going to do as much volume as Coinbase. I say, get out of the door. That's never going to happen. Like, it's impossible. But, but that's actually what happened in 2020. And, and we are seeing volumes across decentralized exchanges growing. So I think this space is so dynamic, so fluid, that, that things just move very quickly. Let's go back, though, to 2014. You're buying Bitcoin on local Bitcoins. A lot of our listeners joined the space after 2017. Talk to us about local Bitcoins, because that sounds crazy. So you you message someone on what the a local forum, you message them on on an app and you say, hey, look, you have a Bitcoin. I want to buy it for $100. They say I want to sell it for 150. And you say, let's meet in the middle at 125. Yeah, so I would say uh, local Bitcoin is similar to eBay. So kind of like there's a bunch of sellers, like let's say 10 different guys, and they all put up advertisements. I have Bitcoin to be sold at like, let's say $50,000, and $50, $51,000. I have 10 Bitcoins to be sold at $55,000. And then you kind of go through the list and there's a reputation system as well. So like, it's kind of like an Airbnb as well. That's like, this guy has made like 20 trades and like he's got a five star rating. And then there's like a bunch of reviews. Oh, very good trader, very good trader. And then I kind of go through local Bitcoins, kind of like search through the list of traders, kind of find someone that is online. And then like he has sort of a good reputation and like, uh, people have given him a lot of five star and some nice reviews. Like, okay, this is probably the guy that I would trade. And and and, and once I say, okay, I, I want to buy like one Bitcoin. I don't know, back then it was hundred dollars, for example. And like, okay, we agreed. And then then the next thing is like, here's the bank details. Please transfer the money to his bank account. And then at the same time, like uh, the Bitcoin that he has is put onto escrow on local Bitcoins. And once the guy said that he received the funds in his bank account, then local Bitcoins will release the Bitcoin to me. But then again, there's always this fear, right? What if the guy wasn't honest? Like, what if I send the money over to his bank account and, you know, he said that he didn't receive it? Like, what's going to happen then? Like, do I write a support ticket to local Bitcoins? Hey, I've sent him my, my, I transferred money to him. Here's my bank transfer slip. But there's all this fraud, right? Maybe I'm the scammer and maybe he's not a scammer. What if I doctor a fake transfer slip to a local Bitcoin and, and claim that it's fraud? 
so yeah, there's all kind of weird things that's going around. Um, and there's two ways, right, for local Bitcoin. You can kind of transact online, or, and here's where the shady part comes in, or a scarier part. You can kind of meet in person and kind of transact like cash for Bitcoin in like, a coffee shop, for example. I would never want to meet someone in a coffee shop and transact Bitcoin. It sounds really dangerous. But it was quite a common thing back then to kind of meet someone in a public area and transact uh, Bitcoin back then. Wow. So, so you might meet this person in a coffee shop. That's crazy. Okay. So you, you've, uh, you, you mentioned the American markets a few times, right? So you said in 2013, 2014, right? Coinbase is kind of coming out of Y Combinator at this time. You know, Binance launched in 2017 in China, right, with CZ kind of taking the market by storm, obviously kind of follows the Reid Hoffman blitz scaling method. Talk to us about the non-American markets pre-2017. So I, I, I studied in the UK, in London, and after graduating, I came back to Malaysia. And there was no easy way to buy Bitcoin. And local Bitcoin was kind of relying on a peer-to-peer -peer marketplace. So there must be a group number of sellers and, and, and to fulfill the market. And I live in Malaysia and, and things are a bit not as advanced as the UK market, for example. So I wanted to buy like local Bitcoin, but they buy some Bitcoin from local um, from sellers in Malaysia, but there wasn't any, any sellers in Malaysia, right? Thankfully, I had some money in the UK from my bank account from my student days. So I kind of searched like for some listings on local Bitcoins in the UK. And, and that, that was how I bought my first Bitcoin. I was in Kuala Lumpur and I basically transferred money in the UK from my UK bank account to this random dude in the UK and, and I got my Bitcoin. Um, and at one point, my sister was studying in the US and once I kind of understood things, I kind of told her like, can you help me register for an account at Coinbase and you just kind of like buy Bitcoin for me because that was just the easiest and most convenient way to, to buy Bitcoin uh, compared to me dealing with some random stranger because it wasn't very pleasant. He, there's always this trust issue that, that, that goes on, yeah. Fascinating. So. You studied it uh, uh, in, in London. How come you left Malaysia? How come you left kind of, you know, that, that region to go study in, in the UK? You, did, yeah. you didn't go to study kind of Bitcoin or anything like that. If I remember correctly, you studied economics? Yeah, I did economics in UK. I was on a scholarship. Uh, so a company, government link company in Malaysia sent me uh, on a scholarship to study economics in the UK. And um, I guess I was kind of fascinated with the concept of money and that was kind of where I came from. I learned about money and I think what really drew me into Bitcoin was after I graduated, I kind of stumbled onto the Bitcoin white paper uh, on some pro programmers forums, Hacker News to be exact. Uh, and, and a lot of guys were talking about this new form of money, magic internet money, uh, VCs in Silicon Valley were investing in, in, in Bitcoin, uh, in Bitcoin companies. Uh, but it struck me as absurd that my lecturers did not mention Bitcoin at all when I was studying. We learned a lot about the financial crisis of 2009, learned about quantitative easing and all those things. But um, it struck me as odd that nobody, you know, talked about these things. Uh, so I, I got curious. So I read a white paper and said like, okay, this is interesting, right? I, I didn't really believe in quantitative easing. I thought that governments printing money uh, in the billions back then, now in the trillions these days, uh, it's not really a sustainable thing. At some point, this whole thing's you're going to see strain on the system and, and this whole thing may not really sustain. And uh, we thought that, I thought that there must be a good store of value. And so I thought like when I, when I saw there's a hard cap of Bitcoin, that was interesting to me. Um, I also thought that, you know, like governments can freeze your accounts anytime. Like uh, if I knew that a lot of people had money frozen at PayPal and the money that you don't really control is not really your money. So kind of having sovereign currency was kind of a big thing. And, and yeah, kind of that, that was what drew me in, I suppose. 
Can you give our listeners a little bit of background on just the Malaysian government and what the scene is like out there? I think a lot of the listeners are a little more familiar with Singapore because Singapore is pretty crypto friendly. And obviously Singapore and Malaysia are, are quite closely intertwined. Um, but can you give the listeners a little bit of background on just how the Malaysian government treats crypto and just kind of what it's like to live there in general? So the Securities Commission of Malaysia um, has a pretty progressive stand. Okay, so one thing is so they made a little bit of a weird ruling where they classified every cryptocurrency as a form of security. So Bitcoin, Ether, XRP, like everything just classified as a form of security in Malaysia. And uh, with that, all securities laws apply onto cryptocurrencies. Uh, they kind of put in place a regulatory regime for, for crypto exchanges. So they've given out licenses to three different exchanges. They do an order book system, so order based, order book based exchange. Uh, so that's a way for users to come in and buy um, Bitcoin legally. But the order book may not be as thick as what we see on exchanges like Binance, for example. Uh, so, but the, the, the government has so far, it kind of follows a little bit of the Japanese model, I would say. The SC, Securities Commission, we have to kind of whitelist the tokens that can be traded on the exchanges. So at this point in time, um, the number of tokens that can be traded is quite limited. So you can only trade Bitcoin, Ether, XRP. Uh, I think Litecoin is allowed and probably Bitcoin Cash, I think. So like these four to five different cryptocurrencies. I can't remember the exact number, but it's roughly this list. And every single uh, token that wants to be traded needs to be whitelisted. So that's one thing that they've done. The second thing that they've done is they are kind of in a consultation phase right now to kind of release... Um, uh, a regulation on initial exchange offerings. So we have these three players and they want to allow uh, companies to do IEOs in Malaysia because all cryptocurrencies are classified as securities. So it'll be interesting to see how things pan out once like everything's firm up over here with this piece of regulation. Hmm. I read a post on Twitter, uh, it may have been from a few years ago, that, where you, you wrote, the best way to scale a Southeast Asian startup raise money in Singapore, build a tech team in Vietnam, win the Indonesian market, and use business development talent from Malaysia. How are you building a Malaysian start? Is that kind of the model that you're following? Is most of the team in Malaysia? What, what's the model that you're following here? Yeah, um, I, that, that's actually the right way. I mean, that's probably what I would do if I were to go down the, the fundraising route. So actually, CoinGecko is interesting. We kind of uh, took on a bootstrapping model. So we bootstrapped the entire company. We chose not to take on outside capital. I think the reason why we didn't want to raise capital in the early days was because uh, we tried talking to a lot of people about Bitcoin in 2014 and nobody really understood what it is. And then we kind of talk and talk and until at one point you just give up, right? Like just like, like we're sell I mean, if they don't even understand Bitcoin, there's no way they understand what we are doing at CoinGecko. And the market, essentially what we're doing is we're betting on the, the, the hyper growth of the crypto industry and, and nobody could really see where it was uh, back in 2014. But after 2017, a lot of people saw, saw it. But by 2017, uh, we, we kind of started things slowly. We bootstrapped, we kept our jobs. Uh, Bitcoin and crypto was kind of not very serious back then. And uh, that kind of, uh, by keeping our jobs, we kind of like, you know, we don't, we're not pressed for cash, right? So TM and I, we started a company and we started a website, building CoinGecko. Uh, we just two of us. We, we had two, the two essential skill sets that are important. Like TM builds the website and I basically go out and market and sell the website. So I built a community. I did all the admin, BD, uh, marketing work. 
as for CoinGecko. So I think there's, there's two key skill sets that's kind of important when you build a startup. So one is you must be able to build something that people want, and building it is not enough. You've got to have the ability to sell it really well to the world or to your, to your target audience, actually, to the target audience. And that's essentially um, the two skill sets that, that TM and I have. We complement each other really well. So with just two, two of us, we kind of like hustle away and kind of build things. And we, we kept things really low. We didn't really hire anyone. We, had, we did every, almost everything ourselves. Uh, uh, we didn't have an office. We didn't have anything. So not raising capital as well was kind of a blessing in disguise because I re we remembered a lot of companies from the 2013, 2014 days, they raised money from VCs. And typically, there is an, an 18 to 24 months runway. Uh, but a lot of these companies, they sort of died after 24 months. So sometime in 2016, mid, late 2016, a lot of companies kind of announced that they shut down, the Bitcoin companies. But kind of if you remember the, the Bitcoin space, like 2017, January was the time when Bitcoin started going to start this massive bull run from January. And then by March, by May, I think by the end of 2017, it was a massive bull run. And everyone who kind of stayed and went through the, the, the bear markets of 2015, 2016 kind of survived and, and kind of managed to ride through this wave. So I think in crypto, the, the cycles are slightly longer than the startup cycle. It kind of follows the Bitcoin halving cycle. So every four years, you go through a massive bull and bear market. Basically, you need to have cash to last three to three, at least three years in crypto because if you can't sustain throughout that, that bear market, like it's just going to be tough to ride through to the next uh, bull market. Uh, because we kept things really low, uh, I mean, the cost really low, we managed to kind of ride through the bear market and, 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 and went through and sustained through 2017. We kind of like decided to quit our jobs and, and focus full time on CoinGecko and grew it. And, and back to your earlier point of like uh, fundraising in Singapore, uh, scaling the team. So yeah, essentially that's what if I were have, if I were to have, if I were to raise money, like I would definitely go to Singapore to raise funds. Uh, valuations are higher according to uh, international standards. Uh, valuations, if you raise from local in Malaysia or Indonesia or Thailand, may not be as high from if you compare to what you can get in Singapore. Uh, and then you kind of want to tap on all the if you build a Southeast Asian startup. Say you want to be an Uber for Southeast Asia, for example, you definitely need to win the Indonesian market because that's like Indonesia has like I think like 200 million or 180 million people, in, uh, and then the other countries uh, like like Malaysia, for example, only has like 30 million people. So you definitely need to win the Indonesian market. If otherwise, there's no way you can build a, a Southeast Asian uh, startup. All right, little break from the show to talk about our favorite topic taxes. It's tax season, right? IRS just pushed back the deadline. It's time to do your taxes. Thankfully, we got Luca coming in as a partner of Empire to help us all do our taxes. Luca just raised $75 million over the course of the last year. They raised from folks like S&P, George Soros. They've been around for years, super legit. A bunch of big names in the space use them. I've been using them for one reason, which is uh, I'm cheap and uh, Luca helps you do your taxes for 20 bucks, right? They save you time, they save you money, they got all the plugins, they make it super easy for you to do your taxes. So if you've been putting off taxes, you're dreading crypto taxes, let Luca make it easy for you. Head on over to tax.luca.tech forward slash empire. Also, uh, just click that link in the uh, description, it'll take you right there. All right, let me know what you think. All right, let's talk about buying Bitcoin. Uh, if you're anything like me, you've used a dozen different platforms to buy your crypto over the past few years. I've used every single platform out there, 
they're all pretty different, except they've got one thing in common, which is they've got these stupid high fees, right? I used to have this recurring buy setup where it was $500 and I'd get hit with a $7 fee every single time, right? So I am super excited to announce that Exodus is now sponsoring the podcast. You might not have heard of Exodus, but they've been around since 2015. Their founders are real OGs. Big fan of Exodus for two reasons. One, you can buy $500 worth of Bitcoin instead of a $7 fee, it's a $1 fee. Pretty big difference. The other thing is they have over 130 different assets on the platform. So if Bitcoin's not your thing, Exodus has your back. Head over to exodus.com forward slash empire. You can also find the URL in the description. And uh, yeah, let me know what you think. You talked about valuations. I want to talk about valuations in a little bit, and I want to talk about the business model. And also I want to touch on the Indonesian market. But before that, you and TM bootstrap this business. You do it just with just two, the two of you, no office, just, you know, TM's doing building the product. You're doing the sales and marketing for three years, right? 2014, 2015, 2016, obviously 2017, the bull run comes. Take me back to the exact day and the moment when you and TM decided to go full-time? Yeah, so I think at one point sometime in 2016 was the bear market uh, in crypto. And I mean, the lowest point was when Mike Hearn, a Bitcoin core developer say, he's done, he's quitting Bitcoin. That was like, okay, you know what? Like, shit's getting pretty bad. Like, even the core developers <laughs> have lost faith. Like, I mean, why am I still in this space, right? So we kind of like thought of selling the website. We went around trying to kind of get people to buy it but like nobody had any money back then nobody everyone was poor and we, like nobody wanted to buy this site off us and like we would have just sold it for a cheap price if someone were to give us a cash but you know nobody wanted to nobody had the cash so we kind of like stuck with it we kind of like did our work we have our jobs we don't really have to worry about money uh and then at night on the weekends we kind of build and continue building the site and i think sometime in 2017 right things things kind of like we started seeing like traffic increase pretty significantly uh, month on month, or maybe day on day as well, and things started breaking because all the scalability issues. And like we said, that hey, actually, you know what? Like <laughs> maybe this time, like things may be different, right? Like like we start hearing normies, uh, retail guys, friends and family asking about like uh, Bitcoin and all. Like, like okay, so they started feeling, and the ICO started going crazy and all. So we decided that you know what? I think this is you know it'd be foolish of us if we don't you know quit our jobs and like focus full time and kind of grow CoinGecko because this is probably the moment for us and like this is we're just lucky enough to survive the bear market and to ride this next wave were you making money uh yeah. by you know mid 2017 yeah so our company's actually been pr profitable pretty much from day one so we didn't really draw salary for ourselves uh because we had salaries from our jobs right so we, we didn't need to draw salaries so we were selling ads uh to Bitcoin companies if you can, uh, otherwise it goes to Google Ads for Remnant Ads. So we had some revenue from ads and uh, as long as it covered the server costs, we were happy. So we didn't really have, so I guess you can say ramen profitable, that's kind of the word, I guess. So I think from 2014, 2015, 2016, we were just like, yeah, I mean, it covers the cost, like maybe some extra cash that we can take it off the company just to pay ourselves because we never really paid ourselves. We knew this wouldn't last forever, so we kind of, uh, put the cash and kind of be frugal with our spending because we knew that 
the next bear market is just around the corner, and that's going to last us three years uh, that we need to keep enough money before the next bull cycle come again. So essentially, that's what we did. We took the money, we paid, and then we store some cash in the bank and, and kind of prepare for the bear market and looking for people to hire and, and kind of grow, grow the team from there on. So the bull market comes. How do you decide, you had experienced this long bear market, right? How do you decide how much cash to keep on hand, how quickly to hire? Because you had experienced this pretty tough bear market. A lot of other companies that you and me both, that's kind of when I got in the space is around the 2015, 2016, started casually looking at it. 2017 went full time. How did you think about keeping cash on reserves when so many other companies scaled up too quickly and then went under? Yeah, so a lot, I think a lot of people, like when the bull market come by, they just hired and they were not very careful with who they hired. They just bring in, they, they move into swanky officers. They just spend as much money as they can because money seems like it's flowing in, but like it didn't last forever. For us, we just want to be frugal uh, because we didn't have any VC money. We, we saw hard-earned money, right? So we just kind of kept things kind of not hiring aggressively. I would say that the general rule of thumb is uh, VCs always say like 18 to 24 months runway, right? I, I, in my opinion, 24 months runway is too short for crypto. You need 36 months runway uh, to kind of last through the bear cycle. And if you have 36 months runway, if you have the liberty of 36 months runway, I think you are quite good as well. I guess the hard part is during bull market like now, like the expectation is for you to grow as fast as you can. But what happens if See, the question is, we don't know like when the bull market will end, right? What's the top? Is it 50000 Is it $100,000? What happens once you reach the top? Will it just go down crashing or be a slow death? Like nobody knows, right? But, but, uh, but, but, but that, that, that's kind of what makes, what, what makes building a company in crypto space really hard as well. Yeah, that's why I think so. Let's talk about venture for a second. Most of the companies in the space, you know, they, they kind of follow the traditional tech model, which is they'll raise a large venture round if they're more of an infrastructure company, uh, like a custodian or a prime brokerage or a lender. And then there's all, obviously the DeFi projects that, you know, oftentimes raise from the community. I think my question here is why, why don't you take venture? I'm sure you've had large venture offers, no? Yeah, we receive uh, offers from VCs. Uh especially in the past couple of years. But I mean, we, we started discussing internally a lot on like, should we do it or should we not do it uh, with, with venture? So I think at this point in time, um, I think we're pretty comfortable with where we are. I guess once you take money from venture, you, you sort of uh, become an employee of the company uh, and, and you subject yourself. You have, you have to report to, your, to a boss, right? The investors is your boss then. So I think at this point in time, it's quite nice not having any investor. And uh, I guess for us is we have cash in the bank. Uh, if we take more cash from investors, so what do we do then? Do we do we blitz scale the company and all? So I guess that that's where we the, the challenge that we have. We we haven't really decided. It may be a path that we take at some point, uh, but but there is no set nothing set in stone. I think for the time being, like I think once you take venture funding, like so what what defines a good exit changes very significantly. Uh, VCs are interested in, venture, ventures interested in uh, 100x return, for example, because they invest in 100 companies and 99 will die off with only one doing really well that will cover for the entire portfolio, right? Um, so what may be a good exit for an entrepreneur that does not have any uh, VC funding, like a, like a 2x return or whatever, uh, 
is actually a failure from a VC's point of view. So the venture capitalists will always, it's kind of a drug. Once you raise money, you kind of always have to continue raising money because then the valuation will go up and then the VCs can write uh, uh, higher valuation on their books. And then, uh, and then the, the aim is to grow big and big and big until you either make it as a super massive company like Coinbase or you kind of like blow up and, and explode, right? Um, so there is no middle path, whereas if you kind of like don't take venture, you kind of kind of can scale the company at your own pace and whatever exit that you, at whatever point in the future, if we decide to take it, like that is a good exit point for both of us. But once we take money, then you know, what is success, the definition of success changes very significantly. What would be your definition of success with CoinGecko? I think for us, like where we are right now is really to me is quite a success. Uh, I, I mean, I would have never imagined uh, building a website like CoinGecko right now to be where we are. I mean, CoinGecko right now is the top, I think I checked on Alexa just now, was 742 website, most visited website in the world. Like the thought of building a website that was the top 1,000 website in the world um, like five years, six years ago, like never would have crossed my mind. Like I thought that would be an impossible thing to do. So, I mean, now is we've achieved this and I guess for us is what's next, right? Like, I guess the key thing is where will crypto be in five years time? And uh, how can we build and support this industry as we go along uh, this ride? I think for us, our vision is this, right? So, I mean, when we started CoinGecko, we started it with only, we started tracking only 20 tokens on the website. And, and, and I was trading these like few tokens, Litecoin, uh, XRP, <laughs> and Ripple back then was known as Ripple and, and a bunch of other coins. And that, that was kind of fascinating as well. But the, the universe of tokens have expanded like so much since then. And on CoinGecko, there's over 6,000 tokens listed. So it's kind of a 300x growth in number of tokens uh, in the past five years. And, and these are only tokens that we track. Uh, if you think about it, there's all these LP tokens and those Aave tokens, C tokens, FY tokens, all these other uh, derivative tokens from all these lending protocol, platform protocol that we haven't really tracked yet. And, and, and there's all these NFT tokens as well that, that we are not tracking as well. So the, the universe is actually a lot bigger than what we are tracking right now. And I guess if you project this like five years from now, where will things be? We, we feel that anything of value that can be tokenized will be tokenized and we'll be living in a world where there will be millions of tokens. And I guess the question that we ask ourselves is how can we as Coin, at CoinGecko build the infrastructure, build that layer for the average guy on the street to kind of come in and search the crypto token and to know what it does and how it does and, and, and everything that there is to know about that token. So five years out, 10 years out, we're living in a world with millions of tokens. CoinGecko is the number one place to go view the, you know, the prices, the market caps, the volumes of all of these tokens. What are some of the crazier tokens out there? I've heard, I've heard you say that you think individuals will tokenize themselves and that will get much more popular. Can you talk about that thesis? Yeah, so um, there's this guy called uh, Alex Masmesh. So... I think he's French. Uh, so he wanted to, he's, he's young. He's just, I think, just out of uni or a couple of years out of uni. And he wanted to build a startup, but he wants to have some buffer before he moved to San Francisco. It was kind of like me, uh, maybe fresh out of uni. I, want to, I would have loved to move to Silicon Valley and kind of try to build this uh, startup dream as well. But like, I mean, moving across country, trying to figure out a visa issue and all, it's not exactly the cheapest thing to do. And, and, 
Alex kind of raised uh, a twenty thousand dollars kind of human ICO, if you may, and he did this income sharing agreement with uh, everyone who participated in his token. So, uh, so I I I sent like a few hundred dollars to him just to participate because I wanted because I I knew what he was feeling, uh, what he's facing because I was kind of in his position a few years ago. So I wanted to support him and and that he said that I think he will send 15% of his inc whatever that he makes uh, to token holders for the first uh, for every for the next two years I think. So he's been paying out for the past uh, every quarter for the past few quarters, and I think he's now starting a startup in the crypto space, uh, building NFT. So I think income sharing agreements, uh, I think will be interesting. So I think the hard part is regulations, right? So how can we templateize these income sharing agreements where people can kind of go out and kind of raise money, you know, and other people can kind of support young people or other people who want to build a certain project in a legal manner? Uh, I think that's kind of a murky question. Uh, you start seeing like some people selling like there's a lot of other personal tokens like uh, I like Ruben Brahmanadan's council token where he sort of tokenized his time and you can kind of uh, buy council token which you can kind of you can you can trade this council token you can send it back to Ruben and he can give you like one hour of his consulting time. He's a ex lawyer at Coinbase and he can he can consult you on some of his stuff. Uh, so I think tokenizing your time is a pretty doable thing like if I buy like 20 tokens which have 20 hours of your graphic design work you can kind of like use that as a token um, beyond that I think there's a lot more interesting applications uh, of personal tokens like what do you do with it how do we do it uh, I think I think it's interesting like uh, this this space and I, I won't be surprised if more people will start issuing their tokens after this let's get back to coin gecko for a second the team you UNTM bootstrapped this thing. It's just you two for three years. 2017, you start hiring. You've got money in the bank. I saw on the website the team has, I don't know, 19, 20, 21, 22 full-time employees. There are 16 open positions, which would put you at almost 40 employees. Uh, I'm sure there are plans to hire more. Where does CoinGecko look? What, what does it look like just at the end of this year? How many employees? What's the rough page views i if you can talk about revenue at all what what does it look like so yeah um i think we're about like 20 close to 30 people right now i suppose and we kind of set a target for ourselves like we want to double the team size so i think if we if we, if we get to around 50 by the end of the year that's kind of a good number to have but i mean not just anyone right we, we've been pretty picky on the people that we hire and i think we kind of hire people who have the right technical skills and hire for fit and that's kind of important because Crypto is kind of, um, it's like a niche by itself. You kind of, uh, if you may, it's a bit cultish. <laughs> and you must, you must kind of like understand the ethos of the crypto people. Otherwise, it's just hard to fit in to, to the crypto culture, the subculture, if you may. Uh, so, so yeah, that's, that's what we do. The page views actually correlates quite strongly with uh, Bitcoin price. When price goes up, page view goes up as well. Uh, generally speaking, Volatility drives page view for us. Uh, if there's no changes in price, so if Bitcoin range trades between like $50,000 for the next three months, for example, interest will go down and then the page views will slowly go down. But when price goes up, price goes down rapidly, we get a lot of uh, traffic. Um, so yeah, that's... that's. Uh, actually, what I'll say is that because the Bitcoin price is so volatile, so it doesn't feel like the top is in yet. Uh, I feel like the retail, the normies are finally coming in to... To, to crypto and uh, so I think I think this is going to be a great year. 
Nice. Amazing. We, we have an ad supported business as well. Um, so we're pretty familiar with that model. I went to buy ads on CoinGecko last night and it was an amazing, really easy self-service uh, checkout. For anyone listening, I would recommend uh, buying some ads on CoinGecko, but I was trying Bobby to figure out how much money you guys are making. You've got 120 million page views a month, $8 CPM. That puts it at like a million dollars a month, but I'm sure there are multiple spots. Are you, can you share anything around those kind of numbers? Um, I mean, generally don't disclose uh, revenue, but I mean, that's a simple way of approximating uh, the revenue. But I mean, $8 is kind of an ideal amount that, that, that we can sell, right? Most people, um, uh, we can't sell at that price. I mean, the larger clients ask for more discounts, for example, and, uh, and some of these ads are not sold, which becomes remnant, and it goes to Google, which does not pay $8 CPM. I think it's more like <laughs> $1 CPM or $150 CPM, depending on the geography of the the, of the user so so yeah um that's a huge variation in 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 ad revenue uh but yeah i mean i wouldn't disclose more but yeah you can sort of approximate like the revenue that's yeah awesome your main competitor coin market cap got acquired by binance i was looking at similar web this seems to have really helped your business obviously you know rising tide lifts all boats it's always nice to see everybody doing well in the space, but it had to feel nice to see your main competitor get acquired by an exchange, which is, you know, obviously kind of a conflict of interest. How, how did that feel when that happened? It's kind of a interesting feeling, uh, interesting, interesting day. So I was on a call with a VC actually, they were trying to pitch us and like, you know, take our money, you know, for example, and then like, and the, and the news broke and I was like, oh, oh wow. Uh, they got acquired for 400 million. It was kind of a big thing. Um, I guess it's good because it validates now. The funny was the, the question that, that she asked during our call was, so how do you value a business like CoinGecko? And then the news broke and I said, there you have it. You have a comparable now. That's, that's how you value the company, I suppose. So uh, I was trying to give explain what, yeah, comparables is, uh, so I, I like it. I mean, it's good for us that uh, there's a comparable figure uh, now, but you're right in the sense that uh, I think what it surprised us that there was that that Binance acquired it, but I think what surprised us as well was the was the was the community right. They didn't take that acquisition favorably, and um, a lot of people didn't like the fact that Binance acquired it, and and they say it was conflict of interest and so on. So, um, so that was kind of I guess kind of surprises as well. So yeah, there there is definitely this this conflict of interest as well. So how do you go around solving it? And it's something that we think hard as well. So like if you know, if we eventually want to exit or when we want to exit, like what's the next step, right? Who else will be a perfect acquirer for CoinGecko or what's our next path as well? So there's no right and wrong answer. I mean, we don't know yet at this point in time, we just kind of grow and we know that we just got to build what the crypto industry needs. And that's what we are focused on at this point in time. Coin, CoinGecko and, and you and uh, TM specifically are kind of known in the space for having very strong morals. And I think that's incredibly important when it comes to building a data business, right? Because your data is, it's both B2C and it's B2B. It's B2B2C and, B2, and B2C, right? There are 120 million people looking at your site, or 120 million page views a month looking at your site to get the price of, of these assets, which impacts people's por portfolios. And then you obviously have your API business where it's powering different feeds where people then look to, to check the price of their portfolios, which impacts their personal lives. So obviously, you know, the, the data integrity is incredibly important. 
have you you sell ads right and i'm i'm and, and you rank a lot of exchanges exchanges are pretty notorious for having the most amount of money in the space what's the craziest offer anyone's ever given you or or bribe that anyone's ever given you to to kind of adjust the rankings yeah I, it's interesting that you so you, that you mentioned this uh because it does happen um um especially among the chinese exchanges right so they were very blatant in their ass i would say like how much do i need to pay you to kind of increase our ranking from like you know one score to another score and i told them like we don't do these things like there is a methodology that we follow and every exchange will follow this same methodology we don't we don't adjust because you pay us any money we don't take any bribes but i see where they're coming from because in china like there are similar data aggregators like us but in chinese and everything on that data aggregator is sort of a pay to play so it's very common for chinese exchanges to pay to improve their rankings on the chinese data aggregators because that's expected of them because uh, the aggregator requests or demands for this money from them because if you don't pay them then they just rank you lower so uh, a lot of these chinese exchanges they take the same mindset and they kind of go out and say like okay how much can i pay you to improve that uh, like it, it kind of it's really annoying and, and kind of i find it offensive when they do such things and and, and and we just tell them like look it's the same like if you pay me you don't pay me anything you pay me the, a lot of money the rank we still follow the methodology we don't we don't we don't modify them yeah how come the um so you offer you have an ads business but then you also have the api and the community loves you for it right because you give it away for free how come you give it away for free i think i think we had we wanted to support the small guys and a lot of them like actually let's just face it right a lot of the smaller crypto companies they're not profitable maybe they are profitable right now but a few years ago they were not profitable and like didn't really feel right to charge them for for an api so we kind of find a way that we can kind of serve massive amount of users so we use cloudflare we kind of cache orders requests one of the easy way for users to come in and get uh the, the data without api keys and all so that was kind of like where we came from and a lot of people were requesting data for us from us and we were kind of getting data for people in excel at some until one asking for historical data so we passing a lot of data via excel and then like at one point just like this is too much effort to kind of like like service all these requests from like random people like random teams random companies around like let's build an api to kind of help uh build this uh, help these guys out and all and and then kind of like that's kind of the genesis of the api and then we kind of grew it and we didn't really want to charge for the for for api that and for the like the normal man on the street who wants to just check his crypto price on his portfolio on google sheets for example so we kind of give it out for free I think we've reached a stage where like a lot of people like our API and we started receiving requests for higher rate limits these days. And like this request started become, uh, coming more and more. And we said that uh, you're right, there is a subscription model that we can charge for the API. And, and essentially that's what we have been doing for the past few months. And we started building up a more robust API for some of these enterprise uh, clients who wants uh, higher rate limits and more updates and all. So we be, we're doing some beta tests for this enterprise uh, a pro API, uh, this pro API that we have, and and I think we'll be announcing uh, soon, I suppose. Yeah, but but yeah, that's that's kind of the plan, I suppose. So more more of these uh, pro API with keys and all coming soon. Amazing. Are is there plans to scale up the kind of institutional side of the business, the both the B two B side selling the pro API, but also selling kind of 
bigger and more and better data, not better data, but more comprehensive data to the kind of institutional investor side of folks? Yeah, I started to think a little bit along this route as well. So I think, I think that's, a, that's a massive market on the institutional side. I think if you look at a space that um, a lot of demand for indices, uh, like, I mean, if you, uh, if you were to launch a Bitcoin ETF, uh, like you need a Bitcoin index and there's a few providers out there in the space. I think it's something that we are thinking as well. How do we go around doing such things as well? So thinking early steps, no solid plans yet. I think for now, uh, very firmly, I think the target market is very B2C for us, very retail centric and a little bit of B2B to C via the API business. So we help other crypto companies via our API to serve other consumers at this point in time. Awesome. Let's, uh, let's change gears a little bit, Bobby, and, and start to wrap this up. This, this podcast, Empire, is entirely focused on sharing this, the stories of founders building this new financial ecosystem to you, you guys are bootstrapped, right? So to an outsider, you know, building a startup might look seamless, but there's, there's always a story. So what, what is it about startups that you and maybe TM didn't really understand or that you think maybe other people don't understand until they've done it? I think people kind of, uh, underestimate the amount of time required to get uh, product market fit or to find uh, some sort of success. It just, I mean, when you start up something, you always thought that, okay, uh, you know, it would take one month to get this done. But like the reality is like, if you think that, you know, it takes you one month to build that feature, <laughs> it might take actually longer than that. If it thinks it takes you one month to kind of like get this uh, massive deal that will help project and propel the company forward, uh, whatever BD or sales or whatever, like it generally takes longer than that. But I guess you gotta hustle, right? You gotta find a way and 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 uh, gotta work hard, work smart, and and find a way to to break past all these challenges and kind of grow, I suppose. How do you prioritize your time now that you have, you know, you'll end the year with it looks like you know maybe fifty employees. How do you prioritize your time? That's maybe different from how you prioritized it a year or two ago. <laughs> it's an interesting question, right? I mean, I always thought that, you know, as I, as we grow the team and we add more people, we have more free time for ourselves and we can kind of take more time off from the business and relax more, but it doesn't seem to be the case. I mean, I'm doing this uh, interview with, with you, it's, uh, it's close to 10 p.m. right now for me over here. <laughs> um, prioritizing is hard. Uh, for me, I look at things, it's, it's, it's kind of a marathon, right? Um, I always try to maintain like... Uh, regular sleep cycles, uh, seven hours a night usually, and kind of like, because it's not a sprint. You don't, I don't, you know, you don't want to go all out, 100, work 110, 120% and then burn out after six months because that's not the way it is. Uh, we're here for a long haul, like uh, three years, five years. You want to kind of sustain a high level of performance uh, over a very long period of time. Finding the right talent is key because then you can get them to manage things and take it away from your plate. Uh, delegating work out, I suppose. So, and then deciding what to focus on. Uh, at the start, like the founders always do all the jobs, right? And then eventually I always think of it like putting in processes in the company. So at the start, the founders will do every single job in the company. And then eventually, essentially, I'd like to think of myself, of me firing myself from a particular job 
like I used to do marketing, then I hire, uh, I used to BD and then I hire a BD guy. So I fire myself from BD and a BD guy will take over. So once I have, I used to do marketing, then I hire a marketing guy and fire myself from doing, I used to, you know, go in and write every single tweet and reply to every single DM. I used to answer every single support ticket and I fire myself from like, you know, doing support, for example. Uh, that's kind of how I like to think about it. And, and, and once you have processes putting in place like the playbook so that you can kind of scale the team forward. What role are you looking to fire yourself from right now? Um, I mean, we're still very hands-on for investing. So looking to get more someone to help us out with investing, um, some, some finance related role, looking to get someone to, <laughs> to help out on that, to fire myself from that finance role as well. Who are you learning from these days? So I think crypto Twitter, uh, Twitter is kind of the best place to learn. Uh, so I kind of follow all the, a lot of the, the, the DeFi guys, like uh, crypto guys. So like, I think some of the threats, a lot of things like I don't really understand, but like reading some of the, the threats, uh, I'm, I'm spending a lot of time in the NFT circle these days. So, so these are guys that, that I read. I think that's kind of one of the best place to learn up. Who is uh, the most impressive entrepreneur in your mind? inside or outside of crypto? I think Sam Bankman, right, of FTX is really impressive. Um, started out as a market maker, doing market making, doing trading for an Alameda and then made a big bet on an exchange. FTX kind of grew that into a massive business to where he is right now. And, and now he's kind of taking, taking things to the next level. He's kind of like doing philanthropy and all and trying to, which is kind of a good thing, right? I mean, everyone's crypto, like, you know, so he's talking about earning money, earning money, but he's kind of like, hey, you know, you earn all this money, you got to do something good for the world. And, and I, I like the fact that he's kind of like pushing people to think about what's kind of your, what's your contribution to the world. And, 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 and the fact that he's doing it is, is kind of a massive thing, I would say. Awesome. That's all the questions I've got for you, Bobby. Do you have, uh, you get the opportunity to ask me one question. So what's, um, what's the plan for Blockworks, I suppose? The plan for Blockworks is, I mean, right now we're a multi-platform financial media company, right? That our main focus is basically just to provide the best source of insights and information and analysis for investors who are getting into crypto. We're, we have a very different business than CoinGecko in that we're never going to have 120 million page views a month. And that's not our goal, right? Our goal is we don't care about the 100 million page views a month. We'd rather have 1 million page views a month and have those page views come from, you know, large hedge fund managers, venture folks, accredited investors, financial advisors. So I think there are a lot of media companies in the space right now. None of them are set up to support the, the big wave of investors that's coming into the space. And that's our goal through our daily newsletter, through podcasts like this, our publishing site with, you know, our, our journalists. And so, yeah, that's really our big goal. Cool. So interesting to hear that. Amazing. Well, Bobby, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. I'm such a big fan of CoinGecko. Congratulations on building the biggest really data provider and aggregator in the space. It's, it's wildly impressive and uh, I'm rooting for you, my friend. Thank you. Thank you very much for the support and for the podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, reach out to me at Jason Yenowitz on Twitter, punch Apple 
or Spotify's review, five stars if you enjoyed it. Head over to YouTube, check us out there. If you haven't subscribed to our newsletter, we're at blockworks.co, blockworks.co forward slash newsletter. Uh, and yeah, again, hope you enjoyed the episode. See you next week.